Hello and welcome. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. We have a very special show lined up today, an entire show dedicated to an interview of two women in studio with me, Elizabeth Savadich Wolf and Katie Hopkins, visiting here in Texas doing the Texas tour all the way from Europe. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my first five. In fact, today it's going to be about a first two I want to tell you about the two guests joining me in the studio today. One is Elizabeth Sabadich Wolf. You may have heard me mention her to you before. She's been on the show before. She is an Austrian woman, an Austrian citizen, who was prosecuted in the year 2009 for simply saying out loud in public in the country of Austria a fact that was true about the Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Her conviction was upheld over a 10-year period. You'll hear more details later, but she really is on a mission to spread the word about the importance of freedom of speech and the impact on Austria and all of Europe of the Islamization of Europe in which there is simply no tolerance for criticism of Islam. Also in the studio will be Katie Hopkins. She's here in the studio today. She's a British woman, and she has been a just relentless advocate for really the culture of England, the culture of Western civilization, not just free speech, but the entire uh, standing up for the culture that has prevailed in England for centuries and has been greatly changed by the Islamization of Europe in recent decades. And they're here with me today. Welcome, Katie. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Us. And welcome, Ooh, Elizabeth. Both of us, Thank yes. you very much. <laughs> What I want to start with, uh, you're on this uh, Texas tour, and in fact, you gave it a name which is very cute, Katie and the Wolf, Katie Hopkins, Elizabeth Sabadish Wolf, Katie and the Wolf Texas tour. And I think we're starting with Elizabeth, although please just both chime in. Um, but what is this tour all about? Why are you in Texas and what's the tour all about? Well, uh, the first reason we're here is because Texas is fr means freedom. It equals freedom. It's something that we, both of us in uh, Europe no longer enjoy to the degree that you enjoy. As a matter of fact, we don't have freedom at all. We think we do, but we don't. Uh, so we've come here to warn Americans, and I will let Katie finish my sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Not to fall as we have fallen. You know, our message, Katie and the Wolf joining together, is you know, not to become like us. Don't let what's happened to us in Europe be what happens to you here. And as you'll know, your listeners will know, as we can all see, you're starting to see changes here in America, which are very like the change, changes we saw a few years back. So we're ahead of you down this kind of dark road, but you are clearly not that far behind us. Okay, well, you know, everyone in America, of course, around the world hears about the the violent jihadist attacks, the attacks in public arenas, at concerts, in restaurants, and just all the really uh, horrific jihadist violent attacks. But that's not really what you're talking about, or it's not all you're talking about. You're also talking about, and I use the expression the Islamization of Europe, whatever term it is you use, you're talking about nonviolent, but yet mm -hmm. 
truly assaults on the cultures of your countries that uh, the term Islamization, how I mean it, is that, is that how your cultures are being changed forcibly and subtly, subtly by the presence mm -hmm. of an increased Islamic aggression um, in your country. So I just want to start with what is exact day to day? What is the difference between how things were 30 years ago and today? What's the day-to-day -day impact of this um, impact of Islamization on Europe? And I guess I'll... Let me... Mm. The first example that I can give you, if you say 30 years, um, I lived in Kuwait from 1997 to 2000. And I saw the impact of the Islamization of my country when I used to go home on, on, on a home visit uh, from Kuwait. And I would take uh, the subway, public transportation, and all of a sudden I would realize, oh my gosh, there are more headscarved women in the streets on public transportation. I saw the transformation of my country right before my eyes, you know, having been away for only a few months and then returning home. Uh, that's when I first really noticed it. But the reason I noticed it because there was the Bosnian War before and Austria took in a large number of Bosnian refugees. So you would have all these headscarves. Mm. That's the first time I noticed. And I think um, from a, I guess, a British perspective, you know, we, I'm a big fan of diversity. I think diversity can be brilliant. I think it can work perfectly well. I think if you're a migrant, you want to come to our country and you've got qualifications, you want to add something, then come on in because it makes us all better. But the reality is that in our British towns, I'm thinking of, of many that I visited, one recently, a small town in a really kind of the, the traditional British area, Yorkshire. It's known as kind of Yorkshire tea we have. Mm -hmm. 97% Muslim and so my only 97% Muslim 97% only 3% are non-Muslim or perhaps Christian or what I would term traditional British nationals but non-Muslim and and the thing about um, the 97% being Muslim is and the question I suppose is where is the diversity then where is the diversity if everybody is a Muslim but you're the one or two that aren't and and I think you're so right, it's not about the big attacks, which are, of course put fear everywhere. But when you speak to, to Jewish people living in France, looking to leave to get out of Paris or, or Brits in Savile Town, they'll tell you it's the small stuff. It's the day to day, the you know, Jewish children being told not to wear their head covering, not to wear their anything that indicates their religion, braids, yeah. their braids, etc. The mum texting the child when they leave, the, the child has to text when they arrive at school, being picked up and told uh, when they leave the synagogue, for example, they have to take off all of their anything that might identify them as Jewish in case they're attacked. And that's a very weird way, a strange way to live your life yes. and the way that daily Islamization mm -hmm. affects us all because we are targets but we just don't know when it's going to be our turn. So what, what would you fear, for example, we, everyone's heard the no-go zones, Raheem Kassam, a brilliant book describing the no-go zones throughout England, throughout Europe. What would you expect to happen? I mean, I understand no-go zones carve out as a Muslim majority, almost exclusively Muslim, and perhaps mm -hmm. the effort to inflict or impose Sharia in those areas. But what would happen? Why, why would that cause fear in you if you were to enter one of those no-go zones? Mm, so I suppose if I think of my, my example in uh, Sweden, I went to the suburbs, which is where the problems are, the no-go zones are. Plenty of your listeners will probably say, well, 
we went to Stockholm, we went to Sweden. It was no problem. It's lovely. Look, I bought this trinket. Wasn't it nice? But you go three stops out on the subway. It's literally three stops to Rinkeby. And that's a no-go zone for a white person. I went there on a bus. As I tried to get off the bus, I was the only white blonde-haired woman on a bus. And the, a, a lovely elderly migrant lady uh, tried to stop me getting off the bus. She said, no, wrong, wrong skin, wrong face, wrong hair. She was trying to protect me because Warn she was saying, don't you. come here. Um, and then a, you know, a gang came up to find out what I was doing there, got in my face, made some inappropriate comments, which we don't need for your listeners here. So it's an aggressive um, marking of territory. And it's the same reason they attack fire trucks that are responding to fires or police cars that come to respond. Uh, they attack those to let the police and the emergency services know, know this is not your area. This is not your right to police this anymore. And in Sweden, there's areas that the fire engines and the police mm -hmm. simply will not go. So it's a takeover of an area to the point where law and order is not allowed in. Or at least our law and order. Correct. They have their own law and order yeah. in these That's areas. A good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned also, we were speaking earlier before the show started today, about how women are actually, and within, I think this was in your, uh, England you were talking mm -hmm. about, but how women are actually, uh, if you enter an area that is Islamic majority, you're obviously they're not really welcome there, that you are, that there's... You'd be attacked, yeah. Well, the, I mean, this this was a, a thing, right, that if you went into a no-go zone, mm -hmm. you would expect, so for me to be there, I'm, I'm deliberately walking that turf to see what sure. it's like. I know it's going to be confrontational. But actually, this email we were talking about was from a lady from a place called Southampton. It's like a, a nice little town, like you might find just up the road here. And she was just returning to her car after a day at a conference. She went in an underpass and she was spat at and called dirty because she wasn't covered. And that's not a no-go zone. That's just an area where Muslim men believe they have authority and control. The right to say that, yeah. Mm. So Elizabeth, I want to talk about this prosecution of you. I just, um, yeah, I've mentioned this story honestly several times on my show. <laughs> and because I appreciate it's such that. A, mm. Oh you're, yeah, but it's such a, an, an unmistakable example of just a, an abandonment by Western Europe uh, Austria and then Western Europe of the kind of fundamental assumption you have in Western society of the actual freedom of speech. So, uh, can you just briefly tell our listeners what happened to you in this in this case? Um, in 2008, I began uh, giving seminars uh, under the auspices of the Austrian Freedom Party. Back then, uh, like a no-go party, a right-wing mm. extremist party. We don't <laughs> want to touch them, and they, back then they were the only ones uh, actually tackling that problem, taking it on, wanting to educate people. So they had me come in and speak about it. And uh, the more popular my seminars grew, the more interest uh, those seminars gained with, uh, with the leftists. So one of, uh, one of the leftist journalists were infiltrated, were asked to infiltrate, uh, was inf asked to infiltrate uh, the seminar. And of course, she didn't. She and her boss didn't like what I had to say, even though the the, the seminar was fully sourced, mm -hmm. uh, and reported me to the police and the authorities. I was questioned thoroughly, and I was then prosecuted first for hate speech. That charge didn't fly. Uh, the judge, at her own discretion, decided to change the charge to denigration of religious teachings, which of course then got me mm -hmm. convicted uh, for saying. I mean, it was a whole 
list of things that I said that the, the prosecutor didn't like, but in the, the only uh, sentence that was uh, left uh, at the end of the prosecution or the case was what, it was a rhetorical question, what would you call the behavior of a 56-year-old man who marries a six-year-old girl and consummates the marriage when she is nine, if not pedophilia? Now the judge said that that was, uh, while it was true that Muhammad had sexual relationships with his bride child Aisha, um, it is a value, excess value judgment for me to call it pedophilia. And uh, I appealed, I appealed, I appealed all the way up to the Austrian Supreme Court and uh, then had to pay a $500 fine and only after the case was closed in Austria could I go to the European Court of Human Rights, which is a sort of Supreme Court mm. uh, in of and in Europe. And my case was accepted in 2012. Uh, I received notice of uh, the case uh, ending in 2018 at the end of October of last year. Uh, there was a ruling against me and uh, I appealed. And a week ago, I was told in very short words, uh, very terse words, the appeal has been rejected. And uh, it's now a fact that my right, uh, it's the right of Muslims not to be offended that supersedes my right to free speech. That's just, I was going to say, give me a succinct summary of the ruling, and that was it. That just the idea that they're agreeing that the notion that Islamic citizens or even non-citizens being offended by something that is true, that's accurate about Islam, their right to not be offended trumps your right mm -hmm. to speak, which then means you can never, I would assume, have a conversation in Austria, throughout Europe, about all sorts of but issues. That is, that is precisely the intention. That is, yes. that is the imposition, the de facto imposition of Sharia blasphemy laws. Yes. And uh, that's what they want. That's what... Uh, um, devout Muslim believers want. They don't, it says very clearly in Sharia law, in the manual of Sharia law, that uh, blasphemy, uh, anything that goes against uh, the feelings of a Muslim, uh, no matter whether it's true or not, is considered blasphemy, and blasphemy is punished by death. Now I'm lucky to be alive. And I, I think just taking from that, so an example where exactly what Elizabeth is talking about is then imposed and implied or applied to citizens in, say, the UK. We had a journalist from Brittany Pettibone from Canada, I think She's that's Canadian, correct. I yeah. Think, yeah. So she was coming to the UK to join a free speech event, really, in Hyde Park at Speaker's Corner, renowned for kind of being a place where people over the decades have gone ironic. to speak their mind. She was prevented from entering our country. She was stopped at the border, no, no criminal record, no, uh, no, nothing against her, just a journalist stopped on the basis of future hate speech, as yet unsaid, that might upset <laughs> local communities. And by local communities, we all know what the that state means. means Muslims, but we're just not allowed to say that word in case that offends. So, you know, just for your listeners, future hate speech as yet unsaid. 
you know, imagine that world. Like George Orwell, how far off was he when you can be stopped from entering a country on the basis of something you, you might have, say? You haven't even said. You haven't you even opened your thought. mouth. You <laughs> might have only thought <gasps> it. You may have said a bad thought. Ooh. Ooh. Thought crime. <laughs> yeah. But this is so interesting because you do end up in a situation where, for example, here in America, you can talk about the concern about no-go zones and how you are treated as a non-Muslim entering no-go zones. Discussion under this standard uh, in Europe, discussion of the establishment of no-go zones and the intolerance of Islam for the, the host culture or for non-Muslims, that all seems like it could be criticized as hate speech, right? It could, oh, it absolutely. Could be. It is. It and, is. And, we, it and, is. It, and the definition is, uh, let's just say you are a Muslim who wants to be offended today. All you have to do is perceive that Elizabeth or I offended you. And that only has to be on perception that that's on the basis of your religion and that's hate speech. So the definition, the, the legal definition in our countries is if you perceive it's you've been hated, feelings. then that's sufficient for that case to be for us to be arrested. So it's no longer the truth. It's just a matter of feelings. Wow. And it goes only one way, not oh, the yes. other way. It doesn't go the other yeah. way. Yeah. I'm sure. Katie, you talked about having, you used the expression, I think, the idea that you're just, you don't, you don't feel at home in your mm -hmm. homeland. Mm -hmm. That was, may that me paraphrasing, but the idea of what you described, for example, going up to Seville, was it? But in other areas where they're major, now majority Muslim, and these are, these are areas that are part of the country of England, but you don't feel comfortable being there anymore. You've been talking about the term homeland. Mm -hmm. You made a little video. It's not a little, it's a profound video. We have a tiny clip from it, which I think Matt is ready to play. I want to show our listeners the video you made called Homeland, if we can. Homeland, yeah. In Western Europe, a silent exodus is underway. There are huge changes afoot here, barely perceptible to outsiders. Across the UK and Western Europe, indigenous people have watched their countries change beyond all recognition. This is a silent retreat of Jews and Christians from Western Europe. Try and beat you down with that all the time, far right, far right, you know, and it, it's not the case. I mean, when people like me, just working class English people, you just feel like a second class citizen. Sabotown's different. It's a no area for a white person. Sabotown is a no-go area. It's a no-go area for a white person. Going to the synagogue on Yom Kippur, I passed a cafe in the street and two men came out and told me I'm a dirty Jew. Katie, you are in trouble. And you are in a big trouble because you are not safe and we are much more safely than you. Sometimes, Katie, I ask, they don't have eyes, they don't have hearing, they don't see what's going on. Are heading for is uh, a Muslim-dominated society that we can we cannot accept it. From this angle, it's a, it's a hellhole. On September 1st, 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland. World War II began, but it didn't start on September 1st. And some Jewish communities in the world should treat every day this might be September 1st, 1939. In Germany, before the war, the pessimist ended up having a swimming pool in uh, Hollywood, and the optimists ended up in Auschwitz. Being Jewish in Europe now, you can't be optimistic. That one line, yeah. that one line, the pessimists ended up 
in having swimming pools in Los Angeles and the optimist in Auschwitz. As a Jewish woman, is she, is yes. that a, a Parisian woman? Or? Yes, so I traveled uh, across Paris, uh, across the places in the UK where people like me don't tend to go, and then out to Israel to follow uh, the story of people in Western Europe. Uh, there's a silent exodus that is underway. So whilst there's a noisy exodus at, at your border, there's caravans of people, there's rocks and there's media attention, yeah. quietly, politely, behind the scenes, Jewish people are leaving Paris. They are intimidated and threatened out of there. Like that couple you saw, they had to move out from the center of Paris and they left to Israel to start a new life. And uh, Brits that I met, like that gentleman, feel second class, don't recognize their country anymore, don't feel at home anymore. We love to feel at home in the places where we live because it makes us feel safe. And so uh, Brits in particular are looking to Hungary and to Poland, Eastern Europe, uh, for a new place. And that silent creep away from our country because of the Islamization of our countries is very much underway. And that lovely couple there, they're imploring their daughters, their children and the grandchildren who are still in Paris to leave. Uh, a couple of their friends just in brief uh, received letters. 18 families, in fact, in one specific area where the Muslims want to take over, received letters to their homes saying, if you don't leave, we'll kill you and the police said they don't have an ability to protect them. So the threat is very real. Where did that occur? In France? the centre of Paris, Center in the Paris. fourth district, so the, the quatrième arrondissement. So these are actually Islamic refugees, or perhaps now Islamic citizens, but mm. they feel comfortable threatening Jewish people in their communities, oh. move out or we'll kill you. And yes. the, uh, why can't the authorities do a darn thing? because they seem powerless to act. So, so um, a few months prior to me putting together this, there's a full length documentary of Homelands. Um, an 82 year old lady, uh, she survived uh, the roundup, the Valdiv roundup where all the Jews were rounded up. Uh, she survived that in Paris. But uh, unfortunately, a few months ago, uh, Miriel Noll was her name, uh, 82 year old lady thrown, stabbed and then thrown from her balcony just for being a Jew in Paris. So, so the attacks and the threats are much more real. What do you think? I mean, Elizabeth, you know, your country, there were people who just absolutely knew for centuries that Western civilization was a source of free speech, the source of the whole you know, robust dialogue and debate of ideas. That was what Western, a hallmark of Western civilization. What's happened to your country, your government, your courts, or, or the same thing that Katie was just describing? Why are the authorities capitulating instead of standing up? Well, they don't, the authorities don't think that they're capitulating. That's, that's the first point I'd like to make. Uh, I also want to add to what Katie said about the Jews leaving uh, Paris, that we have the opposite happening in uh, Austria, where the Jewish faith community actually is in constant hugging and kissing with uh, the Muslims, with the Muslim faith community, to go against those right-wing mm -hmm. extremists that you have sitting right here in front of you. Uh, I do want to remind you that I, when my case broke in 2009, was publicly compared to Osama bin Laden. So, uh, and you know, the, you, you have, you have the, the I, for instance, uh, am on a blacklist in the Jewish faith community. So if I ever called them up and said, you know, I'd like a meeting or I want to visit the synagogue or what have you, uh, 
I my name flashes and I am not allowed to gain entrance into the synagogue or have anything to do with the Islamic faith community in Austria. I'm blacklisted. But that is an astonishing thing because you're saying the Jews in Austria are linking arms with the Muslims. Yes, they are. This is kind of like so there's an expression ends with and then hopefully you make friends because hopefully they'll kill you last. I mean, That's they have is. to see what Islam is doing to the rest of Europe, but they're, for, they're, I assume these Jewish people linking arms with the Muslims are trying to say, maybe this will keep me safe. Maybe I won't be attacked if I just, if I'm I... I'm not sure that they're saying that. Why, why would they do it? Because they, their greatest fear is that so-called right-wing extremism, whatever uh, that is, uh, will return to Austria, and they are pretending that, uh, you know, you have jackboots uh, in the city of Vienna, and that's actually what, what, what is going on all across Europe. If you listened to the, to the uh, mainstream media news uh, from outside of Europe, you would think there's nothing else but Nazis roaming the streets, mm. and that Katie and I are the leaders of this movement. Now, I don't see any of that. Honestly, I don't. I don't think you do. No, but being listed is right. So we, there's an organization in the UK. I don't know if you've heard of it, Hope Not Hate. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, so you have SPLC, I guess, here yes. in the And States. it's your Hope Not Hate. So that's hate our says, version yeah. is Hope Not Hate, which of course just makes them own hope for some spurious reason. Mm -hmm. So they listed out, you know, the top 10 uh, hate top haters in the UK and obviously I'm on that list and, and I think it was global actually and cool to us on there whomever else but we become very clear targets and it's always that sense of oh well if you're Muslim and you're Jewish and you back together then it's suddenly we're the enemy and I think we saw that after the New Zealand terror attack how horrific that was but of course very shortly after you have the synagogue closing its door in solidarity with the mosque so you do see this I, I know exactly what Elizabeth is talking about this alliance between um, the Muslims and, and uh, the Jewish faith community when of course the true story of regular Parisians, Jewish Parisians is it's the Islamists that want them dead. Exactly. We have an interesting thing happening in America, and I think I mentioned to you earlier today, but we had a, uh, the leader of the Democrat Party, Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. uh, the Speaker of the House, and she spoke at the AIPAC conference, and AIPAC was just in Washington last, this past week, I think it was, and Nancy Pelosi spoke there, and she essentially said, you know, anti-Semitism is anti-American, which makes sense to me, but she received a, a very harsh rebuke from a Democrat congresswoman from Minnesota who is Muslim, who's in, in her first term, Representative Ilhan Omar. And Omar was taking offense at the idea that Nancy Pelosi was criticizing anti-Semitism. It's like she was saying, you know, because I'm Muslim, of course I'm anti-Semitic, and how dare she? she? She said, I have the right to my freedom of speech. Mm. So it's not the same. It's an interesting mm. dynamic because I, th I think here she has gone off on the uh, Ilhan Omar on elevating the importance of her, her free mm. speech right to be anti-Semitic. Mm. And, and, it, and it's so interesting, of course, because if your voting block, and we have this with Labour in the UK, are Democrats to a degree, if your voting block is Muslim, the demographics show, as in our country, by 2050, Muslim births outnumber any other births to any other religion, then you do very well to cozy up to the Muslim population. It doesn't matter, therefore, if you're going to be anti-Semitic because you're going to win the Muslim mm. vote and you're going to remain in power. And if power is what you want, as opposed to some kind of moral 
uh, accountability or principles yeah. or protecting your culture or your culture, uh, then power is what you're going to get if you cozy up to a densely packed metropolitan Muslim population. And of course, you have that in Minnesota, Minneapolis, many others of your, of your cities. Yeah. I want to do one more point on these, this uh, exodus of Jewish people mm -hmm. from Paris and England and all that. Um, you mentioned also, I think both of you, that people, not just Jewish people in Europe, but even just kind of mm. native Europeans, My family. Christians, mm. are talking. I mean, the problem is so extreme that you're talking about moving out of your home mm. countries. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you about that, moving where and, and how do you pick where is it you would go? Well, the, the only places for Europeans uh, to go now, uh, because we don't have an Israel and America is very far away for, for many people, is to go to Hungary and to Poland. Because Poland, for instance, has declared itself a Christian kingdom almost. Uh, yeah. They have declared themselves, you know, Jesus is our, our leader. Um, much to the European Union's displeasure. And I know of, of many people, and so do you, Katie, who are moving to Hungary. They're actually buying property in Hungary. And it's no surprise that they're doing so because of Viktor Orban, uh, the, the leader uh, in, it, democratically elected leader, let me, yeah, let me yep. add that, please. Um, and because he's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. There is a border fence my husband himself was down there protecting the border uh, together with uh, his Hungarian uh, colleagues in the army. And he told me, you, ha you stand no chance to penetrate this border. You come too close, even on the Hungarian side of the border, and you will be found by security forces. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, uh, you know, borders do work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think yeah. um, Hungary and Poland both did a great job, I think, and this is where it's a good learning for America, of course, uh, at saying, no, we will not take illegal migrants and we will not take legal migrants forced on us by a quota system. Mm -hmm. So unlike every right. other European country, which just nodded its heads because we want to be a globalist, Macron, Merkel, you know, May, or the M's for some reason. And no children. Yeah, no children amongst those individuals because so they don't really get it intrinsically or instinctively like a parent. Uh, Orban, yep. Hungary and Poland both said no to Merkel's migrant quotas. And that is actually, I think, what's yes. most protected the daughters of those countries. And it's why as a family, my own husband and I have discussed a possible move eastwards eventually because, of course, you want to leave your children somewhere safe. You sure do. So here we are, we're in the year 2019, and this, at least from the perspective of Americans, this seems to have come out of thin air. I mean, we know we had 9-11 in, in our country. We know we, for many people, that was the first awareness that there was just an intrinsic problem with, within Islam of people, of a conquest ideology within Islam. But I don't think, at least unless there were scholars, the average person didn't realize it could be a problem. So, Well, you should have realized, sorry for, for, for uh, interrupting, but you should have realized because 1979, look what happened in 1979. Everybody was asleep when they should, be, should have been wide awake because if you remember 444 days of hostage taking, by so-called Iranian students of American citizens. Right. To this day, I am baffled that it was impossible for uh, President Carter, arguably the worst president in history, though we do have <laughs> a second contender for this title, 
Um, you know, he did not do a thing. He didn't do anything to protect it. Coward and um, fear. It, and it's outrageous. Forgive me for being so upset, but it is outrageous for American president. You know, you always hear no American is ever left behind. And right. basically what he did is he left those diplomats, left, he left them to rot in Iran. And that is, that is when the war actually began. And nobody was watching and nobody was listening. I will tell you, yes, I agree that that was a horrific thing. I also think Americans did not connect the dots between Iran. I mean, they, they knew they were Islamic, but they didn't connect the dots between this is a problem created by Islam, this mentality is, whether it's Iranians or any other nationality. They thought it was uniquely, bizarrely Iran. Mm -hmm. But what I want to get at with, with Europe is, so if you could go back in time, 30 years ago, before you had such a large Islamic influx of refugees, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and you had the culture you're describing now, Jews are wanting mm -hmm. to leave out of safety, you're wanting to leave, Christian families are, native European families want to get out. What could you have done? Is it merely just a refugee cutoff? No, Is that no, it? No. Or? I, I think the one thing that you know, if you were going to ever set up somewhere, you would, the first thing you need is a way that, that of financing, you know, a way of distributing finances. And that's really where we fell down, uh, are falling down, and uh, America is following right behind. We've just had the first mosque open in the northernmost Hebrides, the tiny, tiny dot of an island off the furthest northerly coast of Scotland, where there's only a population, I think, of 32 and only, I think, three Muslims. But 100,000 uh, US dollars was found to build a mosque. Uh, that US very, dollars? Uh, well, it was British pounds, but I was okay. translating oh, for your okay. fun audience. And um, on this most northerly okay. point, and my point rather being, it's all about that kind of idea of conquest, isn't it? Look, we've taken the most northerly point too. And I guess this, uh, this surging number of mosques allows finances to flow into a place from Iran, from Saudi. And as soon as you've got that slush of funds available, you know, you are able to finance your way into a Muslim police association, which we have, Muslim housing association, which we have, Muslim schools, which we have, and then sort of proliferate the number of imams transitioning a culture. So it's this mosque and the ability, not just a mosque as a religious institution, but a way of, of laundering, if you will, funds into a specific community. Mm -hmm. I think that's what, if you could stop the building of mosques, you would be winning yes, the war. Yes, yes, and that's what we're, uh, that, that is what our new government, mm. uh, a center-right government in Austria is trying to do. Unfortunately, they're failing because they're using the wrong tools. Uh, but, uh, well, I don't even give them credit for trying because if, you, if you're trying, you should have a plan and they don't have a plan. But they are trying and we feel, we can feel actually uh, the Muslim faith community getting extremely nervous, and they're they're really uh, trying to push back, and we can we can feel that uh, in the sense that uh, they're becoming more uh, aggressive and pushing back. So uh, while we're not employing the right tools, we are making them. We, as in the government and the Austrian people, we are making uh, their lives uh, uncomfortable as a Muslim. And I think that would be one step in the right direction, just to, to uh, push back the, uh, the practice of the Muslim faith in the public sphere. Um, it, you also have to understand, there is absolutely no religious need for halal foods in the army or in schools. 
It says nothing about that in the Quran. It's not mm -hmm. necessary. We are actually, you know, helping them to become more Muslim. We shouldn't be doing that. It's not our duty. We should become more Christian and not more Muslim. Yep. Okay, well, what do you say about this? So I hear a lot of people in America say, you know, yes, we've got a problem, not just jihad, but this kind of civilizational or cultural jihad and the push of Islamic culture to uh, drown out or, or just push aside Christian culture. People say, well, just locate the moderate Muslims, find the moderate Muslims and have them be your allies and they can in turn help to persuade the more radical Muslims. What's your response to that idea? Do you want me to do that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, we would share yeah. a view, I'm sure. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure so, <laughs> I'm sure too. Well, uh, there is no such thing as a moderate Muslim in my opinion. I know there are people out there who vehemently disagree with me, but uh, there is no such thing as a moderate Muslim because uh, if he's moderate, he's no longer Muslim. Let's pretend there is such a thing as a moderate Muslim. And we are being told by others we should work together with them. We should reform the religion. You could read certain verses in a different way. And I, I understand that, you know, where they're coming from. I happen to disagree. Why? Because. It is not our position to change a religion. I personally find it extremely arrogant of a, of a Christian, of a Jew, of, of a non-believer to ask Muslims to change their own religion, which says of itself it is a perfect religion. And the Muslim, the, the believing Muslim knows that his religion is perfect. So how do you change something that is perfect? I, I, I don't know how to do that. So, and even if, let's say there's an army of moderate Muslims and they show up and they say, oh, we are the moderate Muslims, we're going to work with you. They wouldn't work with us. First of all, they came to our country to live a decent life without war, without uh, fear, what have you. The, li the last thing they want to do is get involved in another war and they are a target because according to the b devout believing Muslim they are actually apostates and they should be killed so they won't work with us because they're afraid of the more earnest Muslims the more well, the I, I don't think they're afraid they're realistic they know yeah. what's okay. going I mean, to happen to them yeah and uh, so I think that's the wrong path uh, to look for the magic unicorn I don't think there is a magic unicorn and I also don't think that there is a moderate Muslim uh, and even if there is one, I mean, look at Christchurch. We have everybody uh, bending over backwards to put on the hijab, and uh, tomorrow Prince we'll Harry will Prince be. Prince Harry, yes, there'll be a royal family member going over for another national day of mourning. We've already had one, and, and we all agree it's very tragic, and we condemn the attack, etc. But a national day of mourning, the call to prayer will be simultaneous broadcast across the nation of New Zealand, and you'll know that Jacinda, the Prime Minister, has already banned their weapons. And I think it's that's where the American. I think sort of the gut reaction, an American reaction would be, well, hold on, we're not laying down our weapons for anybody. Plus, where are all the, the protesting uh, Muslims when 150 uh, Christians are slaughtered in Nigeria? I don't see any of those holding up crosses and walking the streets. This is such a perfect example of the concept of Islamic manipulation of society that the same day in Christ Church, where there was horrific 
utterly obviously horrible thing to have people uh, killed by a gunman in a mosque. But the fact that there are Muslim victims is somehow it has the world on fire mm -hmm. crying out because Islam and, and Muslims are considered to be such victims. They are, they, are the, they are the oppressed. And yet, as you say, the very same day there were murders of by Muslims, by Islamic, by jihadists uh, in Africa. There have been within uh, the Boko Haram within Africa has mm -hmm. been slaughtering villages full of people, burning down churches, burning down houses. These things happening the same time, the same day. And somehow that is just gets no headlines, no attention, no national mm -hmm. leader saying we got to band together and stand up for the African Christians. So is Christians. life of a Muslim worth more than a life of a Christian? Apparently. According to Muslim mm -hmm. uh, scripture, yes there is. So yeah. we have become Islamized. And on the subject of being a moderate Muslim, I recall a, um, I think it was a, a story out of Austria, but there was a an imam in one of the mosques who was essentially arguing about some impending law in Austria. We don't Fortunate time to go off on what that law was, but his point was, he said, there is only one Islam. This, this imam was saying, there's only mm. one Islam. You can't make a different Islam. You can't have an Austrian Islam and an American Islam. It's one faith. Absolutely, so, and that's what happened last year. Uh, I think the, the imam you're referring to uh, spoke last year. Uh, we had the the Austrian government gave a very notorious press conference about how they're going to shut down all these radical mosques and deport radical imams and you know they're going to clean up and and ban political Islam just like uh, National Socialism is, is banned in Austria well I can tell you uh, ten months on not a single mosque has been closed and the imams that have departed that departed until today they were forced to depart, they had to depart anyway because their visas ran out. So they so, were just on, a, on schedule anyway. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't understand the brouhaha. It's like we're, we're just telling you uh, the things that, you know, we're trying to do, but we're never going to. And it would be very easy to change the situation for Islam in Austria. And my colleagues and I in Austria, we know how to do this. We have the tools in the toolbox. And the government, the ministers have known about these tools. We have been telling them for 16 or 18 months now. And uh, they're not following what we're trying to tell them. They're trying to square a circle. And it's still, you know, we have to ban political Islam, even though Muslims themselves say, and if you look, you know, uh, President Erdogan of Turkey says, oh, it's a very ugly thing to talk about uh, political Islam or anything else, because Islam is Islam, and anything else is, is simply wrong. Um, they are going to fail again. And that's what, as an Austrian citizen, what really uh, saddens me. It makes me angry, because it's very simple to tweak certain laws. You have about three, four, five laws that you just have to tweak a little bit in order to, to uh, solve the problem. And they are unwilling to do that, and they're doing all these you know, announcements and, and what we're going to do. It's, it's like all, for show. It's, it's a whole pony show. It's a, it's a circus. Yep. And you don't need to do that. Okay, well, I want to get to one last topic. Uh, here, and um, I wish we had hours and hours. I mean, you ladies are both fascinating. So here in America, when President Trump won the presidency in 2016, among the main themes he spoke about running was make America great again, America first. And this was really a response to uh, many 
in my view, anti-American pressures on our country, uh, pressure to abandon the border, pressure to have uh, to bring in more and more Islamic refugees, recognizing the damage being caused in communities where it seemed as though Islamic refugees were, were taking charge, almost creating no-go zones here in America. And that resurgence of nationalism, of just, it was not racial, but it was about reasserting the greatness and uniqueness of America as a country founded on ideas. It was a beautiful, I mean, even when President Trump spoke in very plain English terms, very everyday man terms, America heard, this guy loves America. He is going to stand up for what America is. This is kind of happening. You've been describing the Islamization of Europe. Yeah. This is happening in Europe. People are starting to say, wait a minute, we want our culture back. Is We want our countries back. Not we want to dictate, uh, we don't want to dictate based on race, based on skin color, but on the, the, the culture of liberty that our, our countries are formed by. And so there is a resurgence of, of exciting populism. And Katie, hey, you, yeah, you were going to talk there about that. There is hope. I, and you know, and I, that sometimes these conversations can be quite dark. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone can leave the room or leave their kitchens or leave their lounge kind of like, oh, all hope is lost. And, and the message really, I think, from Elizabeth and myself, Katie and the Wolf, is, um, is that all hope is not lost on many levels, partly because our, we're looking after our families and that's a way of fighting back, partly because, you know, we're here fighting, we can help warn. But I think one of the fantastic things, thanks to the 63 million people who voted for Trump, is that you have all acted like strings running through a web and you're pulling Europe in your direction and giving courage to others. And that's why now we have Salvini, the leader of the populist in Italy. He's stopped migration across yep. the Med. Uh, he now puts Italians first, and he has as his statement, Italians first. Bolsonaro in South America. You know, you have the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland. They're doing brilliantly well in, uh, in Germany, and they just gave Merkel a whooping that she wasn't prepared for, which caused her eventually to stand down. Swedish Democrats, Fox, I can go on and on. The Finns. The Finns. The point is there's a list now. We could draw it up on the boards of populists that are doubling their numbers uh, in Europe. And when we come to the European elections on the 26th of May, it's going to be fantastic. And I really do. If, if Americans, if your listeners uh, don't care about Europe mm. for the rest of the year, <laughs> we'll let them one off. day. We'll let them off. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can forget about it. <laughs> but one day they should watch the news this year. That is May 26th mm -hmm. for the fallout of the European elections. I think that is going to be a huge game changer. Mm. It's going to have uh, a lot of cages rattling. And if, if you in were Brussels. shouting Trump in a cave and you imagine the echo coming back to you, <laughs> that's that day. You guys are going, Trump, and we're going, Salvini, <laughs> back at you. And, and that's a really good way of thinking about it. And that's why we need you guys in 2020 to shout yeah. louder because we need to bring those populists with us to give Elizabeth and I something to hope for as well. Elizabeth Savage-Wolf, Katie Hopkins, thank you so much for coming in the studio today. What an amazing story you have to tell. We didn't even get to half of my questions <laughs> on my list. You just have to have us back. I have to have you back. Yes, I'd love to. Th really, thank you both so thank much. You. Both for being here and for doing this Texas tour and for speaking out really on behalf of so many people who may otherwise almost be surrendering their countries, but you're speaking up, inspiring hope and inspiring people to feel confident in their love of their country and their recognition that we have a right to defend it. So thank you very much. Thank you thank for you. having us. Thank you.
And I hope you will tune in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. If you're watching us on Facebook, please like this page. Please share this post. Please, please review this page. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe to this channel. You can email me at AmericaCanWeTalk at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at DebbieCanWeTalk. And remember always to speak up for America. Thank you for listening. Talk. Truth about America. Can you-